Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies, Tim, Treg, Dave, and Brent. That's right, four old dudes without a net for the first time. Four old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com. And when you click on our link and shop on Amazon, they kick a few bucks back to us to help fund the free podcast. Today, Brent is going to tell us the story behind Interstate Love Song by Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, we're going to start off, you know, on a sad note, obviously, if you follow music history and current music, Scott Weiland passed away December 3rd uh, at the age of 48. So a great loss of music and wanted to pay tribute to Scott Weiland and and, uh, the Stone Temple Pilots. They were huge and uh, the 1990s when their first album core broke in 92 and then two years later 1994 purple was released and that exploded sold six million copies and interstate love song was on that one and vaseline as well uh spin magazine called interstate love song one of the best songs of the 90s in fact when it came out it made it to the charts the mainstream rock charts and was number one for what was a record then 15 weeks and what's funny is the song that it bumped was Vaseline also on the album. So they <laughs> wow. had 17 consecutive weeks at number one in the, uh, the rock charts. That's impressive. That's a great album. It's, it's a great it. album and great song, and they really hit their stride with that second album. In fact, Spin Magazine said it was quantum leaps ahead of their first album. And, and you know, I, I don't know anybody that doesn't like Interstate Love Song. It, it starts off with, uh, Dave, you can attest to this, with a slide mm-hmm. coming in a riff. Uh, ironically, they say that riff... Uh, and the bass line also was kind of borrowed from Jim Croce's 1973 hit, I Got a Name. There's some, maybe huh. subconsciously, uh, the bassist Robert DeLeo, who we'll talk about later, picked that up. But let's go back to the history of the band. And this is this is pretty funny, too, how they got together. So in 1986, Scott Weiland and Robert DeLeo, the bassist I just mentioned, they met at a Black Flag concert in Long Beach. Um, they were from San Diego. So they come up to this concert and they start talking about their girlfriends and love interests. And they realize that one of the girls that uh, each of them is dating is the same girl. So instead <laughs> of being competitive, the same girl. they were dating the same girl. So instead of fighting over them, they thought it was funny. And what ended up happening is they both broke up with a girl. She got peeved. She moved. And then they moved into her apartment. So <laughs> they moved in the apartment and they brought in uh, childhood friends of Scott Weiland to make a foursome in the band and those two eventually left and they were replaced by Eric Kretz who was the drummer and then Robert DeLeo's brother Dean who came in in guitar and that's the core of the band so if you watch them in videos you'll see they had a drummer a guitarist a bassist and Scott Weiland uh, on vocals and wow what a charismatic I, I think you'd have to put him at the top of, of the charts of of the front men you know the Mick Jaggers and the Freddie Mercury's but this, this dude, every every video, every album, he changed his hair color. He was flamboyant. He would have a pink boa. He was tattooed. Sometimes he would have black eyeliner, but you couldn't take your eye off of him. Scott Weiland was also the lyricist. So, hey, who, was the, uh, who were the two guys that had the same girlfriend? Um, Scott and Robert DeLeo. And, what's interesting, and they stayed friends afterward, and they actually formed a band and played music. Yes. yes. That's impressive. Isn't there the scene in Spinal Tap, which we've referenced on a bunch of Rocktail Hours, where they're interviewing one of the guys, and he has, and he's talking about all the females he's conquested, and, and you see he has like a big like herpes sore <laughs> on his lip, and then they pan over to the next guy, and he's got the same herpes sores that's on right. his lip. <laughs> anyway, sorry to digress, but that's what that reminds well, me of. Well, you know, Tim and I, we used to date the same girls, but we, we, we had good sense to do it at different times, not at the uh, same time. 
Not sure I remember that, but we can talk about that later. Wow. That's more information. Oh, actually, yeah, that's right. Actually, that's true. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. So let's talk about the song. It's actually about lies. And what that means is the Interstate Love Song title, it's never mentioned in the song. But in each of the stanzas of the song, lies or lying or some variation of that is mentioned. And the reason is is because uh, Wyland talked about they went to Atlanta to record their second album, Purple. And his girlfriend, actually fiance at the time, her name was Janina Castaneda, was back in L.A. And so she would call him and say, how are you doing? And what that meant specifically was, how are you doing in terms of your drug use? And he was on heroin at that time. And he would lie and say everything was fine. He would say, I'm doing fine. You know, there's no problem. The song is actually about him lying to her. And it's written from her perspective of... Uh, the and this is what Scott Weiland said. The words are about the lies I was trying to conceal while making the Purple Record. So the Interstate Love Song has to do with they're literally cross country, but the whole part of the album or the lyrics, I should say, are have to do with him trying to conceal that he was in heroin, heroin, which, as we know, sadly was an albatross that he he carried all his life and and led to his uh, death of cardiac arrest at the age of forty eight. And he was on a bus and they were touring and he was getting ready to to do a show uh, promoting his his uh, solo album. So that's the, the story behind the lyrics. Um, bassist Robert DeLeo is the one who wrote the music. And what they would do is a lot of times when they were touring, they'd have a Winnebago, and that would pull a trailer, trailer, and he would be in the Winnebago and start playing a tune on his bass, and they would communicate by walkie-talkie. And so he starts coming up with this riff, and he gets on the walkie-talkie and says, guys, listen to this, what I'm playing. And they're like scattered. Not, they're not even in the Winnebago. And so they start hearing it, and it started off, believe it or not, as a bossa nova. It just had this kind of <laughs> you know, Brazilian feel to it. And if you listen to it, you can kind of hear it now. But it had that cool feel. And Scott Weiland jumped in and just started making up lyrics and, and started humming the tune, and, and that's how the song came to be. One interesting thing I thought, too, about this song is a lot of their their music went into the five-minute range even longer. This one is fairly short. It's only three minutes and 14 seconds. It does have uh, an intro that ties in, and you really see in the video. It's kind of cool, and the video ties in the line theme, too. Now, in this video, I checked it out today. I think I want to say it has like 10 or 11 million hits on it, but what it is, it's almost like a, a French mime, kind of like a a Chaplin-esque character, it's in black and white, starts off, and he's talking to a girl, and she says, get out, you evil worm. And then quickly you see that his nose grows, a la Pinocchio, telling a <laughs> lie. And then he's kicked into the real world as the band sings, and he's kind of interposed uh, or intercut with them. And as the, the video goes, his nose keeps growing and growing and growing to per- perpetuate the line theme. Interesting. You know what I like about that is that there's so many videos, it seems, music videos, that the content of the video is almost entirely divorced from the meaning and the content of the song. Yeah. It's nice that they kind of dovetailed those at least and, and set up the video accordingly. I didn't know that. And I didn't know the song was about lies either. Here's what Scott Weiland said directly. He uh, was on VH1 Storytellers one time, and he talked about it. And he said, uh, this was about honesty, lack of honesty, and my new relationship with heroin. So he didn't conceal. The video doesn't conceal. It's all about not telling the truth which um, obviously we talked about heroin led to the passing of him eventually at an early age, very um, young at 48. So one thing I like about the song is— Although you, you, say that's old, you say that's young, but you know, compared to other heroin addicts in the rock industry, he lived to quite a ripe old age. Oh, it's almost twice the uh, age of the 27 Club that's that we've right. talked about. Yeah, yeah good point. 
I, I, I remember reading after he died in December an editorial by his wife, and it was very blunt and honest where she, she talked about, you know, we love Scott, but we couldn't keep him, and, you know, don't celebrate his death and, and all that. Sometimes uh, musicians are made to be martyrs when they die. You mentioned the 27 Club, and, and, and she was, I don't want to say bitter, but just very angry that he he traded in his family for this obsession, and it's very sad. But going back to happier times, uh, you know, Interstate Love Song, uh, they played it across the world, played it live, and you can check it out on, on YouTube and see some just electric performances. But what I like about the song, it has that groove feel. It, it starts very slow and kicks in, and you know, just three musicians and the singer. But you know, Dave, you would, you, you can test this. Starts off like we talked about the slide and that great riff, and then the rest of it's just pretty much strumming. Mm-hmm. And it's not a complicated song. The length we talked about is three minutes and 14 seconds. But it just is basically just a couple uh, stanzas. And like I said, each one of them talks about the line. It starts off waiting on a Sunday afternoon for what I read between the lines, your lies. And so, again, if you think about it and now listen to it from the context of the girl that's, that's questioning him, did he really uh, change? Has he, he left this addiction behind? And he's very blunt in saying no, you know, even back then on their second album before it got really bad. And he, as we know, he ultimately was kicked out of the band and he became a front man for uh, Velvet Revolver, who had Slash. And you can find uh, on YouTube also some versions of uh, Velvet Revolver doing this song with Slash playing it. So it's very interesting to hear Dean DeLeo playing it and then hearing Slash play it and how he's, he's changed it. So really quick, I've got a good friend of mine who plays rhythm guitar in a local rock band, and they do a lot of 80s, 90s types of covers, and Stone Temple Pilots is a big one. And I've actually never learned a Stone Temple Pilots song, but he was showing me Plush, I think it was, and just playing it. And it's a fairly simple sounding song, but I got a completely new respect for their songwriting abilities one and then just their guitar and their rhythm guitar capabilities it's a really cool song it's from a guitarist perspective borderline unconventional and super creative Hmm. Uh, so those guys are not just doing power chords and singing songs and singing lyrics over them they're they're legit musicians and one of the things i've always liked about wyland is he can take almost any set of lyrics and make a melody that's going to stick in your head they have that uncanny ability to have that edge and have the rock. But this song in particular is super, super catchy. Yeah, I read a quote from Spin Magazine What I thought was interesting. It says, Stone Temple Pilots weren't a great band, but they had some great songs. The best of them by far was Interstate Love Song, the group's biggest airplay hit, and the one jam even haters who derided them as Pearl Jam ripping trend hoppers have to recognize. Their Don't Stop Believing, perhaps. <laughs> Which I'll defend because I the last time you know that I did the the rock tail hour i did don't stop believing so <laughs> i'm a fan of that song and i'm a big fan of this song but um again i want to i want to put a plug in for the video it it to me it encapsulizes that moment in time but it's also everything that scott wyland is he's in a cowboy hat he's sitting on a on a chair just kicking back at one point he leans over and gives a kiss to um dean DeLeo, i believe it is and then later he's driving and he's he's without a shirt but he's got a pink boa on and and again, it's the flamboyance. It's the charismatic front man. It's everything that's cool about this band. And uh, unfortunately, they they saw a premature end when you know he had his his demons and his, his struggles. But uh, certainly, I think in time, the song by the Stone Temple Pilots, Interstate Love Song, I think will, will last the test of time. So a couple 
things to offer on that one i did see i read that same interview with his wife where it sounded like she was harboring probably years or maybe even decades of bitter feelings mm-hmm. uh, she was you know addicts create victims all the way around them through lies and deceit and things like that but you know as a as a person and not to kind of bring down the mood or get this heavy but i've had now eight friends two of them close friends pass away from addiction one recently treg that you and i know or at least addiction-related causes. And one thing I would recommend, too, is go and listen to Chris Christie, who came out in one of the town hall meetings. And, you know, I'm not a fan of him individually or as a politician, but he came out and he, he gave a great speech about addiction and talked about how addiction is a disease, it's an illness, that we need to do things to help people that are in that position and understand them. But at the same time, I agree, we end up immortalizing rock stars and revering them and they're basically addicts and it's an an unfortunate cycle because it keeps recycling that same negative behavior and frankly scott wyland was i think partially famous because of all of the craziness going on in his head that was all you know symptoms of his underlying addictions which he was just a slave to that from what i understand i'm not an expert on him and the band but i understand i mean he struggled with it his entire career his entire life and it was something that he never really kicked or even got kind of close to kicking and that led to his untimely demise so was this something that was happening before he got famous or was it after he was famous that this he went down this road i got the impression and, and this is just you know speculative from my readings and research that it was something that as the band got big, as they grew, he got into it. So it was something that paralleled the life of the band going back to his early days. Well, that begs the question then, and I've always wondered this, is when you have everything, um, what is it about artists that it they tend to gravitate towards drugs or alcohol or whatever, and they become addicted, and then they go down this downward spiral. It seems to me, it seems to me, and clearly I don't understand it, so I'm not judging. I'm just making the comment. It's it's hard for me to understand how somebody that has everything can then make that choice, where before they had everything, they may not have made that choice. Is it because of the ease and the money that they have? Is it because they feel great pressure to succeed, and because of that, they have to find uh, an avenue to um, release that sort of frustration or that that anxiety that you that comes along with fame, which I'm I'm sure it must. Uh, you know, when you're famous, you you must constantly be worried about remaining relevant and and not losing your edge as far as being an artist and coming up with the next album that's better. I mean, how how bad would it have sucked to be Michael Jackson, knowing that you could never write another album as good as you've already written, right? And so there must be some type of of uh, drive that pushes people towards looking for some type of release. I think it's escape. I think it's the pressure. I mean, you know, we, we could just throw out artist after artist, you know, from Amy Winehouse to Scott Weiland. But I think a lot Kurt of it Cobain. is Kurt Cobain and yeah. It, James it, Joplin. Yeah. And I think what happens, you go down a path, especially with heroin. And one thing that struck me, I didn't mention about this, is he was very upfront about talking about this is about heroin and my mm-hmm. relationship with heroin. I'm being honest. You know, I lied to her, but I'm in love with heroin, and that's yeah. my relationship. And so I think he just – he felt that that was part of me. I can I can control it, and, and obviously we know – you know, on and off through his career, you know, it cost him his band, cost him his marriage, cost him his children. And going back to what Dave said about this article, uh, it's very eye-opening that his w- wife was was brutally honest, saying, "You know what? He chose heroin over us, 
And that's not a glamorous thing, and that's not a good thing. And you're going to celebrate him for his music, and that's okay. But this, and, and I don't, I'm, I'm really paraphrasing this, and, and this is my interpretation. But in a way, she was kind of saying, this isn't a good guy. You know, what he did hurt people, and, and what he chose to follow hurt his children. And so I don't support that. I loved him, but I don't support what he ended up doing. And he's not a role model to be revered, at least for that part of his life. And I think that's what she was saying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, celebrate the music, don't celebrate the man. So my other question is, if you do stop believing, do you have to apologize to Steve Perry? (laughs) No, I will always believe, just like I believe in Santa Claus. (laughs) All right. But you have to apologize to Bill Clinton. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Didn't he use that song? Wasn't it Clinton that did? No, that was... uh... Or was that Obama? No, or was it, it was Fleetwood Mac. Song. It was Fleetwood Mac. Oh. It was "Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow." Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that Al Gore <laughs> Sorry, famously Mr. or infamously danced to. <laughs> if I got one last thing about this song, and just to put it in context, in, ni- in two thousand nine, it was named the fifty eighth best hard rock song of all time by VH1. So I think that puts it in the context. You know, we're talking about songs that are in the top five hundred or top one hundred. Well, this was. The 58th best hard rock song of all time. I think that shows that this song resonates and will resonate and continue to be popular because it's just, you know, again, going back to Dave said, it, it's just, it's got everything. It's got compelling lyrics, great performance, and, and listening to it as a musician, I love how the bass, the drums sync together, the guitar riff is great, and, you know, the strumming and certainly the vocals and the lyrics tie together. Melody is excellent. Melody, certainly. Top notch. Stone Temple Pilots is one of the bands that brought me into modern music. I was all about classic rock up until early 1990s, and it was, I think it was Plush. I think that was the, one of the very first songs that I heard, you know, from the from the 90s, and, and I was hooked. It was just like, wow. You know, after that and some Pearl Jam songs and Nirvana, just all at once, it was like, wow, real music is still being made. Well, Fantastic. we I have, there's one little exception to what you're saying. We have audio proof that there was actually a bridge between your classic rock roots and your modern music. And that is Whitesnake. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Come on. Uh, the first Rocktail Hour podcast. What are we on now? <laughs> it's going to keep We're coming back. It's going to keep coming back. <laughs> Metallica was the bridge. Come on. <laughs> oh, Excellent. Well, thank you, Brent. Appreciate that. That was a great, great story. You can listen to a clip from the song on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting rock tale of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. And if you think we're lame, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs>